Hi, everybody. I'm Michelle Daniluk, a professor of food microbiology at the University of Florida, and I'm with my colleague. Chris Gunter. I'm a professor and vegetable production specialist at North Carolina State University. We want to welcome you all to our short series of podcasts uh, with the fantastic help and support of AFTO to cover the educational content that we'd planned on sharing at the NASDA Produce Safety Consortium Educators Pre-Meeting Workshop earlier this year. Instead of trying to put together a webinar or some other sort of online show to recreate the experience we had planned to provide at the workshop, we've decided on this short series of podcasts to have an organic discussion with all our presenters and to share insights into the science behind some of our favorite topics in the produce safety rule. Our guest for this episode is from, the, from Washington State University, and she's an associate professor and produce safety extension specialist, uh, Dr. Faith Kreitzer. So Faith, welcome to the program. Yeah, great to be with you guys today. Thanks for inviting me. And we'd like to open this up, Faith, with um, starting off talking a little bit about terminology. And there's some confusion out there about terms that are being used um, in produce safety. And they're pretty commonly confused. So we'd like to talk a little bit about indicator organisms and index organisms and a description of those and what the differences are and what those mean to the industry. Yeah, uh, I think that there's a lot of people that uh, kind of are in that boat where they're confused about exactly what does it mean if I'm looking for E. coli and that's an indicator organism. Um, so from a microbiologist standpoint, we're trying to kind of gauge pathogen presence many times if we're sampling a, a, a either water in this case or a surface or something to try and determine uh, what the likelihood of that pathogen being present is. Um, unfortunately, uh, pathogens, and I guess fortunately for, for a microbiologist, it's hard to find pathogens. That's a good thing for the public safety. It's a good thing for the processors, uh, and it means that we don't have an incredibly large burden of foodborne illness. But index organisms are those organisms that are really closely associated with that pathogen, and meaning as that pathogen may grow, that index organism would also increase on that water supply or in, on that surface. And as those index organisms um, decline, and as that index organisms decline, that pathogen uh, prevalence would also decrease. In reality, we don't have for water, let's say, uh, very good index organisms for the agricultural water that we're using. So we rely upon indicator organisms and indicator organisms indicate uh, that something has occurred. For, so for instance, in our case, E. coli and coliforms is a larger group are many times great indicators of fecal contamination. The logic behind that is, is that, well, if most of our pathogens come from fecal contamination, then we can also have um, uh, this indicator present so we know when fecal contamination has occurred within our water supply or something along those lines. So that's the kind of basic difference between those and indicator organisms really indicating an event has occurred. In this case, many times we're talking about fecal contamination, whereas an index organism is truly indexing um, you know, likelihood of a pathogen presence within that uh, water, for instance. Very good. So just to, just to reiterate, could you, could you talk a little bit then about where 
E. coli falls in there and where coliforms fall into that mix? Yeah, I think, you know, in the world of produce, we are looking at those organisms as indicator organisms and they're indicating fecal contamination. And so if you've ever sat in a room, you know, with individuals and they've gone through a presentation where they've sampled surface water, let's say for foodborne pathogens, and they showed that, you know, they really weren't predictive of uh, the E. coli or coliforms are not predictive of those pathogen presence absence. Um, that is really showing us they're not at great index organisms, but they are really great fecal indicators. Um, and, and that's really how we should be using them. So Faith, you're talking now all in the context of, of water, or you've talked so far all in the context of water. And, and I think, you know, you said pretty, pretty clearly E. coli and coliforms are indicator organisms of some sort of a fecal event in a water case. But let's say I'm doing an environmental monitoring or I'm doing product sampling and I find E. coli and coliforms. Do they also indicate feces in that case? Yeah, so that, that's an interesting question. So not necessarily because we would assume that those organisms are actually uh, naturally coming in uh, from the environment. And so beyond, you know, water applications, we can look at, say, an environmental monitoring program or finished product testing. Uh, and for those organisms, they're really more what we would call a process indicator, I would say, in that case. Uh, and let's say we had applied a process and we'd expect to see an activation. Then if we had those organisms present at the endpoint, uh, we may question if our process was uh, rigorous enough. For environmental monitoring, uh, many times we're using those organisms uh, potentially like say something like listeria species as a great index organism for listeria monocytogenes um, within the respect of environmental monitoring because as we see uh, listeria species presence increase and we know we have a greater likelihood of having um, listeria monocytogenes which is, which is the specific pathogen we're interested in. So not always, uh, it, so it, context really does make a, a big difference there. So if we're trying to look at surfaces or in product testing or anything along those lines, it doesn't mean that those surfaces have been uh, fecally contaminated. It just means that these organisms are um, coming in on your raw product and they may be distributed throughout and you have processes to lower their uh, prevalence and then you can uh, hopefully track that and, and look at reduction throughout your process and look at your sanitation events to see if they are rigorous enough for taking care of some of these organisms on say food contact surfaces uh, but not a direct correlation to fecal contamination. Yeah so that's a let's let's let me follow up on that a little bit so um, I think you said quite quite well that context is really important and I think that's sort of a really hard thing to wrap your head around. It would be really great if it was, you know, simple and these things always meant the same thing if you found them, but I think you said it was said it really well. So if I was doing an environmental monitoring program and I found E. coli on a food contact surface after cleaning and sanitizing, um, what what would you think that, that what would that be indicative of? Right, so it may be indicative of that your cleaning and sanitation and sanitization process wasn't uh, performed with the same rigor that you had anticipated being. And so typically, I, I would say that every uh, process is different and you cannot draw 
conclusions across the, a broad range. Normally how we would look at that is first performing a baseline uh, to try and determine after sanitation where we're really trying to do our best job. What, what level of cleanliness do we reach? And therefore you can monitor for that. So there's a lot of packing houses or uh, growers who may look at um, E. coli presence um, it, because they would expect that they shouldn't have very many E. coli there at the end of packing uh, in reality. And then once their sanitation event comes along, they eradicate those organisms. So if you were monitoring this on that surface uh, and you would set your levels, either presence absence or a specific threshold, like say 10 um, CFU per square foot or not square foot, square centimeter, something along those lines. Um, then you would look at, okay, if I got a hit all of a sudden, you would go back and look at, was there something underlying that? Should I go back and retrain my sanitation crew? Uh, and just be monitoring that environment to see if there was, uh, basically so you could implement corrective actions. But more so looking at sanitation uh, as a way to gauge how well your sanitation events uh, are, are doing their job. Okay, so I wanna follow up on, on that and, and quantifying numbers. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, we don't. So within the produce rule, we've got a standard for E. coli. Um, but when we get test results back, a lot of those test results back report both E. coli and coliforms. Right. Why, why is that? Right, so our tests are a two for one when it comes to many times E. coli and coliforms in that we are using microbiological media that will allow us to cultivate um, essentially both and, and to it's not really they're groups within groups right so E. coli are members of the coliform group um, and therefore this microbiological media basically allows us to look at the entire number of coliforms and then have some sort of differentiation that we're able to make so that we can basically look at which of those uh, organisms that are growing on that media are E. coli specifically. Uh, the, you know, it's either through color chains or fluorescence or something along those lines for most of this media. So in that case, we get back both counts. Um, and I would say as far as which organism people pick, uh, as far as what they're doing for monitoring, uh, it's up to the uh, firm as always, but many people, I, I've seen people rationalize for environmental monitoring, say on a zone one surface, um, using something like a, a E. coli um, as an indicator uh, for many of our different facilities throughout uh, the United States. Um, and I would say that in those cases, um, if they wanted to move to coliforms, what we would expect is we would always anticipate the number of E. coli being smaller than our coliform group. So anticipate a jump up and you may have to go back and reestablish what we call that baseline so that you know what normal is. And unlike with E. coli where many times we'd expect to actually remove it completely from a surface, we may still have a few coliforms hanging around, right? After we go through a, a, a normal cleaning sanitization event. So those are things that people would want to think about if they move from using one to the other. But essentially, we're lucky in the fact that we get both sets of data back when we're testing for E. coli. So you talked a little bit there about setting a baseline, and I want to have you expand a little bit on that. Because when we look within the produce rule, right, we've got given this, this number of 126 E. coli and a rolling geometric mean of a set number of samples based on the type of water. 
but there's not, well, there's not a requirement to do environmental monitoring. And so if you are doing environmental monitoring, how, one of the questions I get all the time is how do you pick what that number should be? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you kind of mentioned baseline, but I think, yeah, you know, there's a lot that goes into that decision. Yep. So let's start with environmental monitoring, even though it's not required under the produce rule. Um, I think that it's something that a lot of firms are, um, you know, kind of trying to tackle. Um, and then we can talk about water. So as far as uh, environmental monitoring goes, your packing house and your sanitization events are very unique to your firm, right? So it's important if we're trying to look at efficiency of sanitization uh, and efficacy of sanitization events, that we really need to uh, dig in and try and do uh, basically a baseline where we know kind of what our normal value to expect on a given surface. And again, not all surfaces are created equal. If you were looking at a surface like a foam, uh, we would expect that that's going to be much harder to clean than a solid um, stainless steel or plastic or something along those lines. Um, so you basically gauge all of your surfaces and they don't have to just be food contact surfaces. They are many times non-food contact surfaces. But for those discrete sampling locations, you determine what you should anticipate as far as a range of values. Going through that baseline is going to be different based upon the resources people have to dedicate to it. Uh, but essentially what you're trying to do is collect enough data frequently enough so that you have a pretty good assurance of what an appropriate value is for a threshold of accepting or rejecting uh, a sanitization event as being a, a, a you know, a, I don't know, the sanitization event is being uh, effective. Uh, so essentially, you know, you go through your baseline study, some firms will spend, um, you know, are larger and will spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in establishing this. They have very big operations. Smaller firms, we're really looking at them trying to collect data from at least one site that they're trying to target. Uh, and we would like to see repetition there, right, in trying to get enough values. Uh, but once we have that data collected per site, we can then go through and look at, okay, which uh, types of services can we group together in establishing thresholds and which are in other groups should be grouped together and essentially establish our threshold and then begin what we would call more routine monitoring. Um, in that baseline event, you're going to be much more environmental monitoring sampling than you would in just routine environmental monitoring. Um, and then once you have that baseline established, you go to uh, less frequent sampling, uh, but essentially just trying to see where you're falling uh, at a given sampling event uh, in that spectrum of what you would anticipate. So it's really kind of a canary in the coal mine as far as you're not going to be able to correct anything that happened wrong with that one sanitization event, right? It still takes days to grow these organisms up. But it does allow you to kind of keep a baseline other than these rapid tests like ATP that we commonly use to give us a really quick feedback as far as going back and recleaning something. This will give us more of a something that's much more closely aligned to actual microbial organisms. Um, so I hope that that's not too, uh, too I don't know, uh, scatterbrain. No, no, that's good. Okay, moving uh, to, do you want me to talk ahead. about water really quickly? Sure. Yeah, so in water, uh, essentially, the FDA has laid out how they would anticipate that we should go about collecting 
our initial values, right? So they have actually set thresholds for us already. Uh, and essentially for surface water, let's say again, as currently proposed, we're looking at, you know, a 20 sample um, data collection point so that we can get our values, our baseline established. Um, and unlike with environmental monitoring, the FDA has set what our thresholds are, right? Uh, but essentially we're trying to feed in enough data to, to uh, calculate those values uh, for geometric and statistical threshold value. Um, so in that case, the work has been done for us, but that's a, a, a really brief kind of differentiation between those two different worlds because they are really different in how, especially this regulation is approaching them. Uh, you know, if a farm definition, um, I, I don't know, if people fall under the uh, produce safety rule, environmental monitoring is not required at all, but from a nuts and bolts of doing business, um, it is very much a requirement for many of our uh, buyers, right? So I think it's something that many growers are confused about, right? Because they're kind of living in these two separate worlds. Yeah, I want to follow up with you about that because we've talked a little bit about sampling in, you know, a packing house kind of environment or a facility environment. We've talked about water sampling, but let's talk a little bit about field sampling. Like we sometimes hear about samples being taken in the field, um, maybe after an outbreak event, but what, what happens with that? How does that work? So when it comes to sampling in the field, um, essentially, many times they're trying to, if it is a for-cause investigation, um, they're trying to go back and recreate what were the scenarios that could have led to contamination. Um, in for-cause, again, you know, I'm not regulatory, but in for-cause, um, many times that crop is gone, right? So they may be actually coming in and looking at uh, different environmental factors that could have led to that and trying to uh, ascertain kind of, you know, as detectives would, what may have been the perfect storm that came together to create this event. Uh, if we're talking about, you know, just routine field sampling and some high-risk commodities, we may see people going in and pulling samples um, in the field prior to even harvesting to try and ascertain if there is contamination, should they, is it a go, no-go for, uh, harvesting and things along those lines. So there's a, a lot of work going on within that um, field. In general, we have a really hard time promoting uh, any sort of produce or end product sampling for foodborne pathogens um, because in essence, what we always tell people is it's, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack mm -hmm. and the numbers of samples you would have to pull and at the low prevalence level that we would anticipate these pathogens being present, um, you're going to be sampling a lot of product and you're probably not going to even, you know, get lucky, only a microbiologist would say get lucky and find salmon, you know, you can get lucky enough to actually get a hit within it. So it can give people false sense of assurances right. um, and not really help them very much unless their contamination rates are incredibly high within that environment, right? And then your sampling plan may be effective, but that scenario happens very rarely. And can you talk a little bit about what, what uh, they're looking for with that kind of environmental sampling in the field? From a grower perspective, like if a firm's just normally going in and pulling finished products, okay. Uh, are they so looking no for an indicator? Or are they looking for an index organism? Like what's the, what are they looking for? 
So in produce, you know, as I said, quite frankly, it's pretty rare to actually do in field sampling, but uh, usually when they are doing it, they're actually looking for foodborne pathogens specifically. Um, again, I don't know if you all have any other experiences that you can share with. I think this is very, um, I don't say, uh, uh, grower specific, right? As far as some of the larger firms have taken this approach in some of these high risk uh, commodities. Um, if we were going to look for something like E. coli, just generic E. coli on produce, that's a pretty useless exercise because we're going to find it. Uh, e. coli is a natural part of our environment, not only in feces, right? It, it's a natural part of our environment. So we would totally anticipate it being on produce, raw ag commodities, right? Um, so doing something like that is not going to be extremely helpful for us. And most of our even finished product testing after product's been packed, it's, it's washing, right, at most, and maybe some other uh, even less invasive events, but it, it's not going to be incredibly useful for removing uh, just generally coli uh, that may be attached to produce. So I think Chris is going to come in next, but I want to ask a question about coliforms and, and field testing or end product testing about coliforms as an indicator on produce. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I would not recommend it. <laughs> I don't know what y'all's thoughts are, but um, I think that uh, we would anticipate them being present, right? So I don't know how much they're really indicative of um, as far as product testing itself. Um, I don't know. Do y'all have any uh, yeah, thoughts no, there? Share that, you know, nor <laughs> normal inhabitant of fresh fruits and vegetables. So right. I, I always laugh when I see, you know, product specs from a company. With yeah, I, I think a lot of times people develop these specs. Um, you know, we've seen in the manufactured food world for a while that you pe see people develop these specs um, and take them from other products and, and inputs and apply them across the board. So it's always worth having a conversation with your buyers around just educating them, right? Because I find many times they may even be just working from a, a place of uh, lack of knowledge, right? Um, and I think, you know, it's always funny when we see, like you're saying, Michelle, things come out on like, oh, in our uh, cut lemons at, uh, at our retail establishment restaurants, <laughs> there's a uh, coliforms on the whole. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're produce. We'd expect them to have it uh, since we're not growing this in, in a bubble, right? <laughs> yeah, so let me ask you about that because we frequently hear reports um, about things like that, like someone has tested, but I've often heard you say you can't really test your way to safety. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Right, and it's in that line of thought that our foodborne pathogens, even when they are present, are present at such low uh, levels that we cannot implement a sampling strategy to really look at trying to identify if they're present or not, right? Um, even, it, it would give us a very false sense of security, even without what we call very rigorous testing plans, right? Um, that we still are not able to really detect at the pathogen uh, contamination levels that we commonly go back and through outbreak events and things along those lines can try and recreate um, where we get outbreaks and we still would not have detected. And I think the leafy greens world is a perfect world to look at where they are doing a lot of product testing, both in field as well as finished product. Um, 
And essentially we still see outbreaks associated with that product. Now, those retailers have made that decision uh, to do that based upon, or those uh, growers have made that decision to do that based upon their um, kind of uh, risk discussions around, you know, they have a really high risk commodity. They've been hit with a lot of outbreaks. And so they're just trying to move the needle and, and use any tool they can, but it's really a, a very poor use of limited resources. Where I would prefer to see people place their resources are really in things along the lines of investing in their programs that can help try and reduce likelihood of occurrence, right? So is your money better spent spending uh, money on a lot of environmental monitoring tests or finished product testing? I would prefer you look at environmental monitoring, right, as a better tool uh, to invest your money in um, and use only finished product testing uh, in a very limited amount, if any at all, when it comes down to it. And during that finished product testing, that's a destructive test, right? So that's right. So this, this product is not coming back to us, right? It is, it is gone. Um, and it's not as if we can just run it underneath a scanner and the results also take time to get back to us. So if we're talking about a test, even best case scenarios, we get, we have a lab in house that can process that, you know, we're still talking about 18 hours to get uh, a, a test result back. If we're talking about fresh produce. We don't have shelf life on our side, right? We're trying to get that product out. So again, that's another thing working against us for finished product testing. So it's not really very helpful uh, for our commodities um, at all. Where we sometimes see people implement finished product testing is where they have really robust processes in place like a thermal process or something like that in our manufactured food world they may choose to use finished product testing on a very limited basis um, to to kind of look at some of these and many times they're even looking at index organisms is what i would say as compared to foodborne pathogens themselves so that, faith i want to take us back to to some of the earlier discussion about uh, indicator organisms and, and indications and testing for fecal contamination. Why isn't that enough? <laughs> so when, what we're seeing is, and do you want me to start by talking about within the context of water, Michelle? And, and then that, yeah, yeah, start there. Okay, so what I think we have an overwhelming amount of data to support is, is within agricultural water, when our foodborne pathogens are behaving differently than our indicators are, right? So we may have basically this disconnection where the fecal contamination event happens. Right after that fecal contamination event, you would probably see better correlation of pathogen presence to that indicator. But over time, within that water environment, these groups of organisms uh, behave completely differently. And what we are seeing is, is that in many cases, our fecal indicators are doing what fecal indicators do. They, they indicate fecal contamination and then they die off over time. Um, our foodborne pathogens, on the other hand, it very much appears maybe a bit more robust when it comes to surviving in that environment. Um, we have a lot of uh, kind of questions around <clears throat> what are the water characteristics that may allow for even regrowth of foodborne pathogens within that water environment? When does this occur? 
Um, but in essence, what we have is, you know, a tool that can be used for detecting fecal contamination when it occurs. After that time period lapses, our foodborne pathogens are behaving differently within our ag water environment. Um, and therefore, when we go in and test, we may see that our indicator organisms are completely, you know, fine, check all the thresholds that we've established, but our foodborne pathogen uh, prevalence um, and even concentration within that water supply may be uh, much higher than what we would anticipate. So it, it's really knowing that these pathogens like salmonella and shigatoxigenic E. coli can behave completely differently than this broader group of microorganisms. And you know, pathogens, I always say they're, they're incredibly opportunistic. You never know that they're there until they cause problems. And many times, you know, the, the water's going to look perfectly fine. It's not like you're pulling from a cesspool, uh, but these pathogens may just be better equipped for surviving within that uh, kind of competitive environment uh, compared to our fecal indicator group as a whole. So when you, you when you look at the literature in the in the produce world on indicator organisms and index organisms, where did you find the gaps? Where do you think more research is needed? Um, right. Or what sort of research should the folks listening to this call be on the lookout for to really help um, benefit the agricultural community? Yeah, I think that um, recognizing the limitations of using indicators. With, especially within the context of agricultural water, I think it is pretty important to think about, right? So if our goal is to indicate fecal contamination, then we have a tool for, for doing so. If our goal is to indicate risk of pathogen contamination, our indicators may not be cutting, may, may not be doing the job as a whole. So what we would really like to have is a really great index organism, right? And if you can come up with that, I would say you'd be a very popular person right about now uh, because that's the million dollar question, right? If um, the, you know, if there had been a better uh, organism like an index organism out there, um, believe me, that had been uh, proven uniformly uh, throughout the United States, I, I have no doubt the FDA uh, would have uh, looked very long and hard at that. Um, but unfortunately, it just doesn't exist. So I would say that, uh, or it hasn't been proven out extensively at this time. I would say that uh, that would be the kind of really like great discovery uh, that we should be looking for is what index organism kind of holds true within this ag water environment. Um, from my perspective, I think that's the, the most important thing we could try and, and figure out. And so I just, I, I'll follow up on that really quickly. Mm -hmm. Is it enough to find it though, right? Like let's say we find, because I know there's folks out there looking at, at different types of, of coleophages or other mm -hmm. types of, of human yeah. indicators of fecal contamination. Is finding something enough? Well, I think that from my perspective, this is probably going to be very water type specific. Because in, in, like when we think about things as a microbiologist, um, we may find that some things are great index organisms within certain water types, but may not be uniformly applied. So I think really testing it out would be incredibly important. Um, I also think that um, things like, so I'll give you an example, using like a 
enterococci, right? Uh, um, as a, a an index organism or something along those lines. Um, if we were going to try and apply that, it may not hold true for all water types, right? Because there are certain parameters of that water like salinity or pH that may be incredibly important. Uh, and at the end of the day, have much greater bearing on um, our pathogens uh, prevalence as a whole. So I think it, it may be a, instead of just a one-stop shop, uh, kind of a more nuanced approach where you look at maybe water characteristics compounded with um, finding index organisms or uh, populations of index organisms within that water supply. So it, it, it may not be as easy as people would like, right? It is what we would come, everybody likes to keep it simple, but at the end of the day, ag water and microbial ecology within that agricultural water is incredibly complex. And I think that that's why it's been such a monumental task to try and figure out what's the best approach for public health. And Faith, let me just ask, you know, we, we keep just uh, sort of generically calling these tests, but can you talk a little bit about those tests that are, that growers could potentially ask for sort of what, what are those tests? What are the differences there? Like, what are they doing that um, would make one different than another, better, worse, you know, more utilitarian than another? Um, you know, can I, I would. Can I? Can I just clarify? Yeah. Like, I think I think in the context of alternative indicator organisms, right? Like, if we're yes. not choosing yeah, yeah. E. coli and right. we're choosing some other indicator, you know, what what other factors do we need to think about around testing? Yeah. So. I would say that if I was a grower out there looking at um, literature, right, and trying to, to ascertain what I should be doing, I would be really hard pressed to adopt another, say, index organism or another indicator organism unless I had clear guidance from uh, the scientific community around how I should be actually implementing it. Um, it's also really important to acknowledge the fact that for many of these tests, uh, they're not widely available, right? And so it's not as if something you can just go, some of them are, uh, but for something like uh, any of our phage-based approaches, it would be really hard to even get a test for something like that from a normal uh, lab, you maybe samples of law too. Um, so I would say to be cautious and to move slowly when it comes to changing your approaches and to really look for those guidance documents from either, um, you know, um, stakeholder groups or from regulatory, definitely, if that becomes the case, uh, to really help there. So that's what I would say is not to just rush in uh, because you're not going to know how to interpret the information that you get back. Perfect. Well, thanks, Faith. It looks like we're about out of time. Sounds good. Yeah. Just, uh, Faith, right before we go, can you, can you give us the take-home message that you think um, educators and any growers that might be listening to should should think about before we wrap up? Yeah, I think it's really important just to keep in mind what E. coli um, is telling us. And I think a lot of times growers and educators um, kind of get a, a little unnerved when they do see E. coli counts, um, you know, kind of wax and wane over time and things along those uh, lines. So know that this is a, a tool. It, it's uh, quite frankly kind of a crude tool for what we're trying to do, but it's the best tool we have available. And you know, when you see your populations go up, it's not, you know, 
if we're talking about within the context of agricultural water, um, or even on surfaces, it's more along the lines of how should we be um, responding to that. So initially, just go out and look to see if something has changed within that water supply or within your sanitation environment, for instance, or within your processes uh, that has led to that fluctuation. Uh, but know that it doesn't necessarily mean all of your product is contaminated with, say, salmonella, for instance, or anything along those lines. It's truly just a, a one tool that we use amongst everything. And so you play a, a big role as far as how that uh, follow-up actually happens, right? So know that E. coli, while it's important, uh, it does not mean uh, direct pathogen contamination. It's just a, a, a needle, right, to show us how likely uh, fecal contamination may have been. And also know that, I know we're in the take-home section point, know that populations of these indicators may also change in water supplies and things along those lines differently uh, from our pathogens, right? So they may also fluctuate when our pathogens are not. So uh, keep that in mind as well. Perfect. Faith, thanks so much for spending your time with us today and for sharing all this fantastic information. I agree. Thank you. Uh, it was really good to talk to you today. And for all the listeners out there, we hope that this has helped you understand some of the science behind these different aspects of the produce safety rule. We'll, uh, you'll find the links that we've talked about today and some notes for this um, discussion with Faith, as well as some articles. So if you have any follow-up questions, um, please reach out to Michelle or I or Faith, um, if that's okay with you, Faith. Oh yeah, that's great. Great. Perfect. So as we originally mentioned, our intent uh, with this is to share content that we'd originally developed for the NASDA Produce Safety Consortium's Educator pre-meeting workshop. Uh, and we can't, again, thank AFTO and NASDA enough for all the support they've provided uh, for us to put these together. If you enjoyed the content and the format, please let us, AFTO and NASDA, know. And if there are other topics you'd like to hear in the future, uh, either in this uh, media or at the next NASDA Consortium Educator Pre-Meeting Workshop, please let us know.